As you're taking your seats, grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I, I wonder if, if you had a chance to think, especially yesterday, about Remembrance Day. Um, it, was, it was interesting. Um, I was talking to a few people even this morning who, who told me that it seemed like this year, even in contrast to last year, there seemed to be a lot fewer people wearing poppies on Remembrance Day. And uh, I'm not sure what the reason is behind that, but I, I love the slogan for Remembrance Day, lest we forget. It's incredibly important that we remember our heritage, that we remember our history, that we pay honor to those, isn't it, who fought and died so that we can experience the kind of freedoms that we enjoy today in this country. It's appropriate that we reflect back, that we remember, and that we honor those who fought so valiantly for the freedoms we enjoy. In the same sense, we are continuing on our study um, in this Reformation series we begun a few weeks ago thinking back to 500 years ago in in a very similar way, listen, we are celebrating those many who fought and many who died so that we could understand to know and to live in the freedom that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And it's appropriate that we take time to look back and to understand the battles that were fought, the blood, the sweat, and the tears that were shed so that we could see the gospel, as we've been talking about through the Reformation, rescued from a relative obscurity. It had been veiled for almost a thousand years. Yes, there were pockets of faithful followers of Christ, but on mass, on a whole, the gospel in many ways was lost. It was distorted. It was deformed. And by the grace of God, God raised up individuals who would stand up and fight for the truth and who would fight with everything they had. The reformers fought for a more biblical understanding of salvation. That was at the heart of the Reformation. These were not mere trivial or superficial battles that were being fought. They were matters of life and death in the eternal sense. The reformers were steeped in a system prior to the Reformation that had a very convoluted understanding of how man could be right with God. There is no more important question that we could ask or answer this morning, how can we be right with God? This is the age-old question. This is the question that had been wrestled through for millennia. This was the question at the heart of the Reformation. Faith alone is our subject this morning. Faith alone is referred to as the material principle of the Reformation, sola fide, It is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that in a debate, one of the great reformers, John Calvin, um, debating this issue, he called sola fide, listen, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. He said these words to his opponent in this debate. He said, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. He said, if removed, he argued, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, The church is destroyed, and the hope of salvation is utterly overthrown, he said. He said, it is sola fide that changes what is most fundamentally destroyed in us by sin, our relationship to God. This is the same question that the jailer asked of Peter and Silas in Acts chapter 16, 30. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the answer from Paul and Silas was this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. 
You see, the answer has always been, according to the word of God, faith alone. It has always been faith alone that saves. And this is exactly what Paul wants to drive into the hearts of the hearers and the readers of this portion of Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at verses 1 through 7 last week, and we're going to pick up and deal with verses 8 through 10. So let's look at Paul explain this idea of grace alone through faith alone for us. He says this in verse 8. Follow along. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul begins by unpacking this picture of salvation for us. We looked specifically last week at grace alone, and you'll notice there is massive overlap between grace alone and faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, by Scripture alone. But here we see first through these verses that faith alone gives me a new reality. That's our first point this morning. Faith alone gives me a new reality. Paul begins in verse 8 with the word for, for by grace you have been saved. And what he's doing is he's linking back to everything that he has already been discussing about God's grace in verses 5 through 7. That grace Paul described as making us alive in Christ raising us to newness of life and seating us at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. It is really a description of our salvation in the broadest terms possible. Paul wants us to understand that no one is saved apart from the grace of God or faith. We saw last week that grace is defined as unmerited favor. It is given to those who do not deserve it, and Paul has made that clear in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. He has described the human condition with unbelievable terms. We've looked at the deadness of our spiritual condition. We are alienated from the life of God through our sin. We are depraved because of our sin. We are deceived and held captive because of our sinful condition, and ultimately we are condemned because of our sin, living under the just wrath of God. And so this description of God's grace and salvation comes in one sense as a shock to our sinful ears and our sinful hearts. Grace that is given is given to give us a new reality, to change our total disposition toward God. Our relationship with God fundamentally shifts all because of God's grace through faith. You see, at the heart of faith alone was the the great doctrine of justification. Justification by faith was the doctrine that the reformers were fighting over during the Reformation. It's been said that the rediscovery of this doctrine took place in the tower in Wittenberg during what is called Luther's Tower Experience. Hold up in this tower in Germany around 1519, this was the issue in Martin Luther's heart. This was the issue that he wrestled through in his own personal life all the way up to this point. As a young man, he wrestled with this core issue in his heart. It was the very reason, in one sense, he became a monk. As we saw a few weeks ago, his own declaration that if ever a monk was saved by his monkery, it was him. The fastidiousness, the specificity in which he lived his life, the sacrificial manner, the way he took upon himself this great burden of trying to earn favor with God. And while he was locked away in this tower, he was studying Paul's letter to the Romans. 
He was relentlessly, desperately trying to understand the phrase that we see here in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 17. For in it the righteousness or the justice that could be translated of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. He couldn't get past this concept. He couldn't understand what was meant by this phrase, the righteousness or the justice of God. And he saw in his medieval theological understanding, this was the the contemporary understanding of the day, that righteousness as God's perfect standard by which all sinners are held to account, a standard that no one could hope to accomplish, but they were all called to try, And in attempting to draw nearer to God through obedience to the law, through restricting his flesh, he became increasingly bitter and angry toward God, seeing God's justice as the just wrath of God continually hovering over sinners, condemning them. His view of God was like many in our culture today. They see, or he saw, like many today, saw God as a mean and vindictive child holding a magnifying glass over in an anthill burning them under his fiery judgment and laughing all the while. But then as he studied this passage, something clicked in his heart and in his mind. Something was unlocked in terms of understanding. He said he began to see the passage in its original context, and he says these words, I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the person lives by a gift of God. That is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice. That by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the the just person lives by faith. And in understanding this one key issue, all at once, he says, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through an open gate. This unlocked everything for Martin Luther. In an instant, he understood and experienced that faith alone gave him a new reality. He said, if you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will and that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. This sounds exactly like the kind of God that Paul describes in verses four through seven, doesn't it? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He understood in this moment, listen, that justification by faith leads you to see what Paul says in Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the new reality that filled his heart with joy and lifted the burden of his soul. See, justification by faith alone answers the question, how can a sinner be made right with God? If all that we looked at in verses 1 through 3 is true, that we are truly spiritually dead, deceived, depraved, and damned in our sin, we are not right with God. That's the the simple implication of the passage So we need to ask this question, how then is this condition changed? 
How can we be given this new reality that is described for us here? How must it change? You know, every once in a while, maybe it's in movies or sometimes in real life, I have sat with people who are experiencing the devastating consequences of sin. Oftentimes, it's, it's incredibly sad. We all know what sin can do in our relationships with another individual. I have sat with couples who have utterly destroyed their marriage, and I have seen the wake-up call as they sit in the shame of their sin, as they realize the devastating nature of what they've done. I have seen them through tears scream almost to their spouse, tell me how I can fix this. What can I do to make this right again? It's quite often a painful experience. And in those moments when we recognize what we've truly done and who we truly are, there is something desperate inside of us that believes somehow we can truly fix it. This is how we often think about our relationship with God. When we come face to face with our sin, when we're broken and we see our shame and we see the consequences in front of us, oftentimes we're inclined to cry out like the jailer in Acts chapter 16, what must I do? Tell me what I need to do to fix this situation. How can I make things right with you, God? How can I fix this dilemma that I have created because of my sin? But you see, to do that with God, we have to erase our sin. To be made right with God, it's not as simple as, you know, some people want to think, why can't God just forgive and forget? Well, because God's standard for making things right is that we would be utterly perfect. So our sinful human condition leaves us with this humanly impossible predicament. We can try to be better, but no matter how hard we try, we can't erase what we've done, and so we stand guilty and condemned before God. That's why Paul emphasizes in verse eight that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It has to be a gift of God. It's nothing you can ultimately do to make yourself right with God. I mean, imagine for a moment that a convicted murderer stood before a judge and tried to argue his freedom because he's been a good dad. How ludicrous is it to think that somehow we could be good enough in some areas of our life so that the bad areas would be utterly erased? Justification is a legal term. The idea is that we are to be declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous or to be declared innocent. It's often been defined like this. It'll be up on the screen for you, just as if I'd never sinned. I think that's a really helpful way to understand this concept of justification and how we relate to God. You see, this is what is required for every single individual to live eternally in the presence of God, to be in a right relationship with God, you must be justified. In other words, God must look at you just as if you'd never sinned. Let that sink in for just a moment. If you were to get to the gates of heaven and God was to look at you and say, why should I let you in? The bar that he is looking for is this. Show me how you have never, ever sinned once. Do you see the predicament that leaves all of humanity in? For the word of God rings true in our hearts and ears, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can meet this standard. No one can leap over that bar. And this is where the cross of Jesus Christ comes in. 
Why doesn't God just forgive and forget? How come he can't just forgive and forget? Because then he's not just. But the cross allows for God to maintain his character. You see, it allows God to maintain his perfect holiness and his perfect holy standard while at the same time being a just judge of sin, which is right. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Just listen, he says, and then we are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is a payment to assuage the anger and wrath of God to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Notice this, God's character is at stake in the cross and in his forgiveness of sinners. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God needs to provide us with a substitute, and the cross allows God to punish sin, which deserves and needs to be punished for God to maintain his holy character, and at the same time, he is enabled to forgive sin, but only by means of a substitute. You see, in in that moment, this is the beauty of God's grace through faith. Listen, in that moment, this is how you can stand before God and God no longer, as was so beautifully articulated in the baptisms this morning, God no longer looks at you, but he sees Jesus because on the cross, Jesus paid for all of your sin. He suffered the wrath of God in your place. And so now, here's the beauty of grace. You want to talk about a gift of God. Now when God looks at you, if you're in Christ Jesus, he doesn't see you in all of your sinfulness. He doesn't see you in all of your guilt and your shame. He sees his own righteous son, Jesus Christ. But for that to happen, he had to look at his own perfect righteous son, Jesus Christ, as if he committed all your sins. And he had to take the weight and the brunt of your sin. For our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the better definition in one sense, and and this is in one sense splitting hairs, but I want to just encourage you, these are two sides of the same coin. Here's a better definition of being justified before God. It's just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. So the beauty of the cross is that he gets all of your sin, but it's not just that you stand there never, you know, passively speaking, that passive righteousness, you've never committed a sin, you also get the active obedience of Christ put into your account, imputed to you. So God looks at you not just like you've never sinned, not just like you're innocent. He looks at you as if you've always obeyed every letter of his law. You've always perfectly lived before him with the right heart and the right motive for the glory and honor of his name. So in Christ, you're not just sinless, but you're perfectly righteous and thereby completely acceptable and eternally accepted by God. This is the new reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. Faith then, here, as we see, we are justified by grace. You have been saved through faith. Faith is the instrument or the vessel that joins us to Christ, and ultimately, believers are justified by Christ as the crucified and risen one. Faith is defined and should be understood as trust or reliance or belief. But faith itself, strictly speaking, does not justify 
Just like we trust in a chair for support because it is trustworthy, so we trust in God's gracious salvation because God is reliable and trustworthy. It wasn't our faith that saved us. Make no mistake about it. It was the object of our faith that saved us. Amen? See, faith justifies as an instrument, as a channel, as a conduit of God's saving work in our lives, receiving Christ for righteousness and life. And it gives me a new reality, and it answers the most fundamental question and problem of humanity. It makes me right with God. So the question you need to ask this morning is this, are you right with God? Are you right with God? This is at the heart of what Paul is getting at for every individual. Are you right with God? Can you stand before God innocent and perfect? Maybe you've been trying. You're stuck on the what must I do part to be saved. And you need to realize that secondly, faith alone makes me a total beneficiary. Faith alone makes me a total and complete beneficiary. The idea of being a beneficiary is that there's nothing you can do to earn it. It is all a gift. Now, this is the big question of our text. Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then notice this next verse or next sentence here. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The question that is wrestled over in this text by theologians is what does the word this refer to? What is the this that Paul is talking about in verse 8? Some people think that the this is speaking specifically about faith, that faith itself is the gift that Paul is talking about. Some people think it's talking about grace, that grace itself is the gift that Paul is talking about. Others think that this is broader than that. Faith is a gift. Let's make no mistake about that. Faith is a gift. In fact, I love what John Stott says. He says this, the great pastor and and Bible commentator, he said, we must never think of salvation as a kind of transaction between God and us in which he contributes grace and we contribute faith. For we were dead, remember what he said in verses 1 through 3, and had to be quickened before we could believe. No, Christ's apostles clearly teach elsewhere that saving faith, too, is a a gracious gift of God. Now, now, did you see what he's doing there? He's using this passage to remind us, listen, of the picture of being spiritually dead and being brought to life, and the, the, the gift of God in salvation. Now, remember last week, we looked at Lazarus as being this, this great example, right? Here's the question that you need to ask when it comes to Lazarus, and then the parallel with your spiritual life. Do you obey and then come to life, or do you come to life and then obey? Just think about Lazarus for a second. Did Lazarus have any ability to obey the word of Jesus to come walking out of the tomb apart from first being raised to newness of life? No, he had to be given life so that he could now hear the voice of Jesus, hear the word of God through the Son of God, and then respond to it. So too, listen, the parallel being drawn for us in salvation is that God regenerates the sinner. He brings us to spiritual life so that we can now finally have the veil torn off our eyes to see and behold the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and then in grace respond to him because of that newness of life. We obey because he in his grace and kindness has raised us to life. 
This is the issue that we wrestle with. A couple of passages that maybe help you see that faith itself is a gift. Look at Acts 18.27. It'll be on the screen behind me here. It says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was helped those who through grace had believed. You see that? Through grace they had believed. The belief was a gift of God's grace to them. If you need some further proof, look at Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you uh, for your sake, uh, or for, for for that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That idea, the, the word there translated being granted means this, that it has been grace gifted to you to believe in the gospel. It has been the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that awakens our dead hearts so that we might believe in him. I say all that to say this, the grammar in this passage makes it impossible to understand that Paul is speaking explicitly of faith being the gift here. In this passage, Paul is not saying that faith is primarily the gift. So then the question, well, what is he talking about? What is the gift that he's referring to? Well, I think it's better to understand as Paul referring back all the way to verse 4 and everything from verse 4 all the way to chapter 8, right through the middle, right through the idea of faith. In other words, the concept of salvation by grace through faith, the whole thing is a gift of God. It's a package deal. Everything is a gift from God. There's not one part of it that is not a gift from him. Neither its origin or its source is with humanity. Paul is wanting to make this crystal clear to us. Who is the one who's responsible for salvation? Who is the one who gets all of the glory? Who is the one who gets the praise? And who will get the praise and the glory for all of eternity? Remember, that's what he said in verse 7. We are therefore total beneficiaries of the gift of salvation. It is, look what he says here, not your own doing. He's stripping us down, and he's removing any sense of of praise to us, of human doing. It's not your achievement, Paul says. It's not because you were good enough. It's not because you were wise enough. It's not because you were smart enough. You couldn't earn this on your own. And then just to be sure we understand, he says it's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. You see, grace features, it shines a floodlight on what God does, what God accomplishes, God's gift to humanity. To be a beneficiary is by definition to receive something that you did not or could not earn, like an heir or an heiress or or someone who has a trust fund. And here you see both grace and faith are actually contrasted with the idea of works, He's combating this idea of works righteousness, that whether that be works of the law, of the religious system, or somehow uh, moral works that you think will earn you favor with God, he contrasts both grace and faith with works. He says, not, notice this in the text, look at it with me, not as a result of works. The danger in looking at faith is often for us to misunderstand it as some kind of a work that earns us favor with God. To believe somehow that it is faith itself that justifies us and to thereby consider it a work that we do. 
You see, if that were the case, if faith was something that was explicitly on us, that was fundamentally upon us, then it would constitute a work, a good work that makes us right with God. And Paul's thinking here, faith is not something that people offer to God with which God's grace then cooperates to save them, as if somehow God is waiting for the part that we must play in and of ourselves. Rather, here, you need to understand this, that faith is aligned with grace, and both faith and grace stand over against anything that human beings can offer to God. It is neither a work deserving of payment nor a ground for boasting. That's exactly what he said. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. No part of your salvation is gonna give you a grounds for boasting before the Lord. You see, if we work for in any way, we have something to boast in. We could stand before God, and God says, why should I let you in? You could say, you know what, God, it is by your grace, but it is also because of what I did right here. And God wants to strip that idea away. He wants to rip that out of our sinful hearts. You say, say, is this really that important? There is some part of us, isn't there, in our flesh that longs, right? This is bred into humanity, and therefore it is bred into our culture. We love to take responsibility for things. We love for people to see us as being accomplished and successful. And even when it comes to the things of God, we crave deep down to have some kind of praise for something that we think we might have done to get ourselves to where we are. Look what I've done. I've made a name for myself. I did it on my own. This is what our culture celebrates. This kind of autonomous, self-made individualism. God says, if you're coming to me, you need to set that aside once for all. See, there's nobody right now, nor will there ever be anybody strutting around heaven like a peacock, okay? It's just not there. Nobody walks with swagger in heaven. I don't know how to walk with swagger even now, but nobody has swag. Nobody has any kind of thing they can boast in. Nobody in heaven is going to be like, secretly, well, you should check out what I've done. I'm pretty impressive, aren't I? It doesn't exist. At the heart of heaven, there is no focus on the individual. There is only focus on the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. There's no self-display in heaven. There's no self-confidence in heaven. But rather only the display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, his mercy and kindness through Christ Jesus. And yet we struggle with this. We struggle with this on a daily basis, don't we? We love to, even in the church, even as Christians, hand people our spiritual resumes. Some of us even believe we can hand God our spiritual resumes. God, check out what I've done. I could be pretty useful around here. I, I just, let me give you a few examples of how we do this because our hearts are so subtle and deceptive. I think there's some, some ways that we often brag. I, I think very clearly there's the confident brag, right? There's the confident pridefulness where, where we, we all know people like this. They actually really enjoy showcasing themselves. And they're not ashamed of it. They're not afraid to do it. They're, they're very good at talking about themselves and their own accomplishments, and they're very good at making you know who they are and who you're not. But there's other people that we come across, and maybe this is where many of us land when it comes to the pride of our own hearts. There's the humble brag, right? Where we love to hear the praise of others. We're like, oh, no, stop, please, please, no more. I can't take it. No, no, please don't say, no. Oh, all glory to God, all glory to God. 
And sometimes in our pride, we're subtly putting ourselves on display. You know, you know you, can you sense that in your own heart right now, those times where you very subtly just want to you know, slip it into a conversation? Well, you know, I'm, I've only served, you know, six widows this week, but, you know, probably could do a lot more next week. Really got some growing to do. Right, that's an exaggeration, but you, you get what I'm saying, right? We love to put our little resumes on display. How about this one, the comparative brag? Well, I know I'm not that good, but I'm sure better than him, right? And this is at the heart of justification, by the way. This is so often how we measure our rightness before God. We look at other people and we say, you know what? I, I thank God that I'm not like them. Does that sound at all familiar to you from the scriptures? publican who walks down and he sees the tax collector who's the despised, the very clear cultural sinner, and he looks at him and he struts around praying out loud so everybody can see him and praise him, and he has the audacity to pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like that sinner. And there's the sinner, right? The tax collector, he's beating his chest before God, and he says these words, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can you just see the contrast? And you know what the word of God says? That man, that man walked away. What's the word? Come on, help me out. Justified, right with God, because he knew he had nothing to offer God. He knew it was wholly and completely dependent upon the mercy and kindness and grace of God. Listen, listen, loved one, every one of us is in that place. Everyone, if not one of us has anything of value we can offer to God, we are all wholly, totally dependent upon him. We are totally beneficiaries of God's mercy and grace through faith. You know, the flip side though of our works-based justification, rather than leading to boasting, oftentimes it's what it does, right? We, we, we're like, well, I'm pretty good. We have lots of people in our culture you can go up to. Maybe some of you sitting here today, like, you know what? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm pretty proud of what I've accomplished. But the flip side of that is equally as deadly. You see, a works-based justification, if you're very aware of the fact that you're not that good, leads to fear-based living. And that's, that's the ugly side of pride as well that we often don't call pride. You see, if you can believe, by the way, this is why this is important, if you believe you can earn God's favor, it's, it, this is the, the better place to land, not in a place of pride, but in a place of despair. Because if you believe you can earn God's favor, you must by necessity believe you can lose God's favor. Do you see that? If you believe you can earn your salvation, you must also, by necessity, believe that you can lose your salvation. And I love what John MacArthur says, if I could lose my salvation, I would, right? Because I know how much of a wretched sinner I am. I know how prone to wander I am. But this kind of theology, it has to lead you to a place of fear and second guessing and questioning. Can you see that? This was Martin Luther's life. Have I done enough? Am I, am I good enough now, God? Just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Just work harder, faster, smarter, better. You know, just more, 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 more. But you're never assured of where you stand with God. It should be a crippling despair. And this, this is, just so you know, this is what the medieval theology of the day taught people. This was what people were trapped in. This kind of, you have to be better. You have to do more. Can you think about the weight that is being placed upon the back of human beings who long to be made right with God, but recognize their utter and total inadequacy and inability to do it? It was crushing. 
It was defeating. And medieval theology taught that justification, here's, here's a difference that you need to understand. They thought that justification was not imputed like we've talked about from the cross, that being made right with God, but that it was infused or imparted. And they confused what we have separated, I think rightly so the Bible separates, as justification, being made right with God, and sanctification, progressively being made more like God because of your salvation. See, this is positional, being made right with God, and this is the practice. So now you are right with God because he has raised you to newness of life, and through faith you've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're, you're, you're assured and secured in the hand of God never to lose your salvation, but now begins the process of growing and being transformed into Christ-likeness, and there's ups and downs. I like to say that sanctification is like riding a bike uphill right? It's hard, and you, you stop pedaling, and you go backwards, and then you make a little more strides, and then you're back again. But you see, they confused this doctrine. They saw justification as something that you had to gain over time, progressively. You see how problematic that is? It was inbred in their theology that you had to make yourself right with God over time. And so you can never be sure. How many of us live like that on a daily basis? Crippled with fear, anxiety, and despair because we live in the relentless pursuit of trying to earn God's favor. Trying to do what is humanly impossible to do. You see, was this a really stark disagreement between the reformers and the Roman Catholic Church of the day? Like, like how much, like really, the, the church couldn't hear this and see in the Bible that it's by faith alone? Like, it seems pretty obvious, all right? We, we would look at something like this. Let me give you a quote. A man who is born again and justified is bound by faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate and that he has the gift of perseverance to the end. Just hold on there for a second. Do you see what's being said here? Just consider these words for a second. A man who is born again, who's been brought to life. This is John 3 language, right? And is justified and bound by faith to believe that he is a servant. This is talking about this. Like, does the Bible teach you that you are saved by the grace of God through the Spirit working to save you and bring you to life, and that now you can have assurance because of your faith in him, and that you can know, listen, that if salvation is truly yours, if you're in Christ Jesus, you will persevere faithfully to the end. I hope every one of us in here says, yes and amen. Can I get at least a yes and amen? Yes, and amen. Listen to this. Listen to the Council of Trent. This is the, the, the Roman Catholic's repudiation of the Reformer's doctrine. This is 20 years after Martin Luther, roughly 25 years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany. They got together, the Catholics did, and they said, let's talk about the Reformer's doctrinal positions and let's nail down what we actually believe. And you'd hope that they would see that and say, yes, that is clear in the Bible. We believe this, but look at this, look at this. Here was their response. Now, if anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound by faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate and that he has the gift of perseverance to the end, unless he has learned this by some special revelation, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. That's what the church said to Martin Luther. If you believe in justification by faith alone, you're damned to hell. How about this? We would, we, would, we would love this statement, wouldn't we? This next one, by faith alone, 
The ungodly are justified in such a way as to me that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to receive the grace of justification and that it is not necessary for a man to be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Just stop there. Just, he's saying this. You know all he's saying is this? This is all a gift of God's grace. It's all God's kindness that saves lost sinners and that we're justified by faith in what he has done for us. Look at what the church responded with the day. If anyone says this, listen, let him be damned. Let him be anathema. One more, one more. Justifying faith is nothing else but confidence. Look at this. Just listen to these words because I, I rejoice in these words, don't you? Justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which forgiveness or forgives sins for Christ's sake. We are justified by this confidence alone. Think about that. We are, aren't we not this morning justified by this confidence that God is rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, he saved us. Well, if you believe that in Martin Luther's day, look at what the church of the day would say to you. Let you be anathema. She say, is this really that big of a deal? This is, this is a massive deal. And people fought and died and stood on this tro- truth that sinners are saved by the grace of God alone and through faith alone. It's a staggering reality to consider. And Paul wants to make it clear that the, the end result, like why, why does God want us to know so badly that this is all of him and not of us? It comes with this simple answer, so that no one may boast. There is no boasting because our salvation and even our faith does not originate with us. Yes, listen, hear me, hear me say this. I get the tension and I, I, we're gonna wrestle through this more, but yes, human beings believe the gospel and are saved. And so in that sense, they, they exercise faith. But at the same time, faith ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit and is a gift of God. Faith then is evidence that you have been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what faith is. One more verse, because I just I want you to see this. Galatians 3.3. 3. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Galatia who are res- resorting back, uh, referring back to, to a works-based righteousness. He says this, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Hold on, what, what was begun by the Spirit? Your salvation. <laughs> having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Listen, what God began by the Spirit, you must remain in that same Spirit so that God continue to work in you. You see, the Reformation doctrine affirms that the activity of God and the passivity of humanity in justification is clear. Faith is not something human we do, but something divine that is wrought within us. This is what John Calvin said. He said, faith is the principal work of the Holy Spirit, and it is through faith that Christ and all his benefits are received. Making me and you, total, and I pray this morning, grateful beneficiaries. So stop working. Stop working for your salvation. Stop working to find favor with God. Stop working so that you could be accepted by God. It will not work. Jesus himself looked at those who were burdened under the yoke of working for their salvation, and he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Third, faith alone forges me a renewed identity. 
Faith alone forges me a renewed identity. He closes off this beautiful section of Scripture that speaks so clearly of our salvation. In verse 10, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace through faith begins to produce within me and you a renewed identity. The words that he begins with there in verse 10 are really important. He says, for we are his workmanship. The word for workmanship can be translated as a master work or a work of art. I know some of us already think we're, we're a work of art, but listen, in Christ Jesus, you're far more than you think you are. This word, this idea of workmanship is used throughout Scripture to speak of God's work in creation. It's one of the ways it's used very often. You know, so, so in other words, you, know, you, you look around at creation. This should bring you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And in the beginning, God created. See, what we see is that God is a master workman. I mean, he creates and he builds and it's good, it says. It's beautiful. And you, know, you ever feel like that? You walk outside on a starry night, and you look up at the stars, and you just, you just, just is it, you're in awe that, God, you would create this. This is the work of your hands. And the climax of God's creative activity is human beings, and God's special attention to human beings being created in his image. And so, in a sense, you know, we're called to look at humanity and see God's handiwork the master craftsman who has created something so beautiful to display his glory and to shower with his grace. Church, what you need to realize is while those things are incredible displays of God's workmanship, the ultimate workmanship of God is a human being who, listen, despite being dead in his transgressions and sins, has been made alive in Christ Jesus. Paul would say it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, listen to these words, creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You know, we often talk about the miracle of life. We seem to talk about it a lot around here. We're putting it on full display. And rightly so. We talk about the miracle of, of a life being born and, and how that's, that's so clearly a work of God from a Christian worldview. We see it so clearly and it staggers us that the world can't see that and understand that. But even in the, the secular sense, they look at the miracle of birth and they realize that there's something spectacular happening. But according to the Bible, the greatest miracle of all is the new birth. It's when you and I, through the Grace of God alone and through faith alone are brought to newness of life through what Jesus calls in John 3, the new birth. That we are born again. This incredible statement, God's workmanship, reminds us to listen, that our salvation, can you just see, you think like Paul has been making it very clear. It's not of us. Okay, Paul, I get it. Paul's like, no, I'm not done. You need to get this some more. So do you see this statement, being God's workmanship, it reminds us that our salvation is God's achievement? 
It's God's achievement. It's God's work. It's a glorious work of his grace. And so for Paul, he describes salvation in terms of a a resurrection from the dead and a liberation from slavery and a rescue from condemnation. That's how he's already talked about it. And each of those analogies and pictures declares that the work is God's, for dead people cannot bring themselves to life again, nor can captive and condemned people free themselves. But now, he puts it here in this one term beyond even the slightest shadow of doubt, salvation is creation, recreation, new creation, and creation language is nonsense unless there is a creator. Self-creation is a patent contradiction in terms. You see that? Nobody created themselves. Calvin writes this, he says, you see then, that this word create is enough to stop the mouths and put away the cackling of such as boast of having any merit, for when they say so, they presuppose that they were their own creators. Just like we had nothing to do with our first birth, so too we have nothing to do with our second. And this renewed, recreated identity is spelled out for us right here in this passage. For we are his workmanship, look at the text in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I love how he plays on this picture of of works, don't you? Not about your works, but created for good works. You see, works are the result of an evidence of God's saving work in our lives. Faith without works is dead, James says. Good works, you want to know a good definition for good works? Anything done in obedience to God's word and for God's glory. So what what good works did God create me for? Obedience to his word with a heart that longs to do so for his glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Do you see how it all comes back here? It all comes back to the very reason where we were created, and it was all for the glory of God. The new people we are in Christ draws us back to God's original creative purposes for man. In the garden, God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden, and he calls them to do what? To work. To live now in obedience to God's word, with the purpose of displaying his glory in all creation, to live by doing that, listen, to live in perfect, unhindered, untainted fellowship with their creator. It is, in essence, you talk about what this means, it means that we were created to know him, to love him, to live for and enjoy him, and to display his glory forever and ever and ever. That is the very purpose of man. So you see, when God breathes spiritual life into you, He recreates your heart. He takes out the heart of stone that was dead in the trespasses and sins, that was depraved and condemned. Listen, the heart that that longed in, in the passions and desires of your flesh and your body and your mind. It longed for the things of this world. It longed for your glory, not his. It longed for your will, not his will. God rips that out of you and he puts inside of you a heart of flesh that now has new desires, new passions. While the sin and the flesh are diminishing in our lives, all of a sudden there is a birth of new desires that begin to flourish and grow. Desires for him desires for his glory, desires for obedience, desires to love, desires to praise. The 
the old is gone and the new has come. So the question for us this morning is that defining us. Is it God's will and God's glory that define you today? If it is, that is evidence that you are alive in Christ. Luther declared that justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. For where there is faith, there are works, but even this is all of grace. This is so amazing. For all our good works, notice what it says in the Word of God here. All of our good works, which God prepared. Who did? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you notice that we are to walk in them, not work in them? One of the dominating themes throughout the rest of this book, especially in chapters 4 through 6, is our walk with Him. Our new manner of life established by our renewed and recreated identity in Him. God has prepared beforehand good works for believers that He will perform in and through them as they walk by faith in His power. That becomes a consistent theme of the Christian life. It is not doing a work. We use this language. We need to change this, I think. It is not doing a work for God, but God doing a work in and through the believer. You see the difference? We don't do a work for God. It is God doing a work in and through us. You say, prove that biblically. Fine. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How's that? Pretty clear, isn't it? Don't you see that in every aspect of our lives, I, I just, this has blown my mind this week, everything we do is a gift of his grace. It is all because of him. Look, even the picture of us in heaven, listen, when God says, well done, good and faithful servant, if you think you're going to be like, yay, look what I've done, he's going to give you a crown. You want to know what you do with that crown? You take it off and you throw it back down at his feet because you know it has never been about you. It has never been about what you could do for God. It has always been what God has done for you and what God has done in and through you. We will forever rejoice in this truth. Listen, so why don't you start getting used to it now? This is going to be the theme of eternity. Look what you have done, oh God. Look what you have done. So lest we forget, good men fought, good men died for our physical freedom, praise God. Good men fought and died so that we might know the freedom and power of the gospel, praise God. But, listen, the good man died, the good man died so that we might be set free to live in that freedom for all eternity. Stop working to please God. Start embracing the work of God and believe by faith alone with Paul that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you for this truth. And we confess to you, Lord, that it is you who has begun this good work in us from start to finish, Lord. You are bringing it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So Father, would you teach us through this truth this morning how dependent we ought to be every single day of our lives upon you, how humble we ought to be in our dependence upon you, and Father, how filled with wonder and awe and worship and praise we ought to be in response to this truth. God, for every day is a gift from you. 
Our salvation, Lord, is a daily reminder of your goodness and your provision. The Spirit of God that indwells us reminds us, Lord, that it is you who is at work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your kindness. We pray now, Lord, that you would receive our worship, God, as a sacrificial act of love. May our hearts be filled even now, Lord, I pray, with a sense of how worthy you are, how deserving you are. May our praise to you, Lord, this, in this final song be filled with gratitude. And Father, may it be a pleasing aroma to you, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.